0: Chatters, let me paint a scene for you. <laughs> We're in the front. Clearly
1: room. not going to work. Anyway, we'll, we'll persist.
0: <laughs> We're in the front room of Annabelle
1: Crab's house,
0: and there's two puppies wrestling each other. Two Cavoodle puppies. One who belongs to our friend Gwen, named Oogie. Listen
1: to this. Yeah, they're fighting each other. Yeah, they're fighting each other. <laughs> one named Daisy. <sighs> Stop it. Yep, there's a dog daycare going on, and it's ha- it has to be in this room because. Like, due to our talent of getting together to record a podcast while something loud is happening elsewhere in our lives, uh, Sales is potentially going to be called in to do an interview any second, so her phone will ring. Uh, There's two dogs fighting. Uh, They have to be confined to this room because um, elsewhere in my house, uh, Joel and Steve are hanging pictures in my house. Now, I... I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast, but um, I've painted my house to make it look less gungy. And one of the things that I've done is get help to hang my paintings Because I've got things leaning up against walls and things that are kind of jerry-rigged or whatever. And so these guys have come in and actually just looked at everything and rearranged things and it's like my house is a new house. It's quite an art, I think, the knowing of when you have like, I'm just looking at this wall here, she's
0: got maybe 12 little bits and
1: pieces of stuff. Bits and and pieces that have been um, collecting dust or leaning against things or inexpertly poked into bookshelves and these guys have gone do, 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 yep. and done what they call a salon hang <laughs> um, at the Art Gallery of South Australia, where you were recently.
0: I was, actually. I went there to see Ben Quilty's retrospective, uh, yeah. which was really great. Um, the Art Gallery of South Australia is fantastic. The Quilty retrospective is travelling, so don't – fresh. If you don't live in Adelaide, you it's can It's travelling it for like it.
1: years, isn't it?
0: It'll be around for a while uh, and it was – Awesome because I I met Ben Quilty not that long ago, clang at a uh, dinner because we have the same publisher, and I was going to be in Adelaide. Really, (laughs) Dorothy. Yeah, that really was pretty obnoxious, yeah, wasn't it? it was for me. If we end. ranked up the obnoxious things we've said on that podcast, that was right yeah, up there. Yeah,
1: it's definitely, yeah, it's um, a medal contender. And
0: uh, I was <laughs> racing off to Adelaide to speak at the Writers' Festival but I had been at Noosa speaking at something the night before so I lobbed in like five. Are you five still o- promoting that bloody book? I am.
1: You've sold am. 100 billion copies of it. Why don't you just <laughs> get off? I mean, like really, isn't it time to sink into a bubble bath and, you know, raise a glass of Dom Perignon or something like wine? Still.
0: Well, as you know, the tragedy of, of um writing books is even when you do sell a ton of them, you get about three dollars a copy. So you feel like you've sold a lot and you've actually made about two hundred and fifty bucks. You should just like
1: <laughs> lurk around at the ABC with like a like a big overcoat with copies of it stitched inside. <laughs> what so do you mean I say, should
0: I-, I do <laughs> shameless. Anyway, I logged into Adelaide about 5 o'clock on this 38-degree heat day and then I had to speak at something the next day, you know, be there at 10 o'clock and Quilty very kindly said, listen, it's my show, I'll, I'll get us in early. So we wow. got to go in when there was no crowds there or anything uh, and just have a leisurely stroll
1: around. ABC Fat the... Cat has
0: <laughs> own art gallery. Lefty, lefty artist escorts ABC yeah, exactly. Fat Cat through Refugee public space. Taxpayers Taxpayers pay for lefty art wanker to – escort ABC Fat Cat through
1: art gallery. That's the Australian sort of a copy for tomorrow. Thank you very much.
0: (laughs) Anyway, it's a really – it's obviously – Not since
1: Julian Birdside became a political candidate for the Greens has there been such a copy-rich day for the Australian (laughs) newspaper. Uh, So that was fantastic. But like all retrospectives, it's
0: done – you know, there's a bit of sampling of his career to date, uh, sort of, you know, chronologically organised. So if you're a fan of the cars, the Taranas from, you know, right at the start of this – Career, they're there, and then the more recent work. Oh my god. Um, Sorry, there's, like a, so there's a
1: wrestle to the death going on between these two dogs. They're both um, very cute. They've taken an, uh, a break from ripping the ass out of my sofa, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Actually, um, my sofa that I bought ten years ago for fifty bucks from the auction house, and its its leg was off already when I bought it, mm. and my friend put the leg back on. But it's now in such ruins, and the only reason that I can't get rid of it is because my daughter is um, obsessively attached to it and Just says, "Get it reupholstered." And- no. Are you really? it's it's structurally unsound oh, okay. have you noticed that one of your ass cheeks is like I've really noticed yeah. it's very impossible it's to sit on it yeah with any it's comfort like sleeping it's... on grandmas for the bed correct um, um now
0: can i uh hate to bring the tone down from its current lightheartedness but um i just really need to have a debrief about the michael jackson documentary okay
1: right because i haven't seen that yet but i've it's the world it seems to be full of shattered people who have oh, seen
0: it. It's called Leaving Neverland. It's on Ten Play uh, at the moment if you want to watch it. Look, it's um, – oh. wow. <laughs> Firstly, I've never seen such detail of um, a crime explained – because often for, the, say, purposes of news and current affairs, you're glossing over the detail because you think, oh, people right. are sitting at home. You have to use at-
1: euphemisms. Yep, yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, it's like sitting in a court case and hearing sure. the level of detail of them discussing um, what was done to them. Uh, it's not violent. Um, so it's not violent sexual abuse, but just brace yourself if you're going to watch it. It is graphic, yeah, child right. sexual abuse, um, recollections of it. And so basically it's two boys – both of whom I remember. One was, do you remember there was a Pepsi ad? Remember in the era when Pepsi used to do those gigantic ads with yeah. um, pop stars? Yeah. And so at the height of Michael Jackson's fame, he was the Pepsi didn't guy. He get,
1: didn't caught he, fire. He caught fire, right? Yeah. I was just thinking, yeah. Something in the back of my brain was like, didn't he catch fire? No. That can't be right. <laughs> yeah, he That's like a synapse just misfiring deep in my brain. So I'm pretty sure he wasn't He wasn't on fire. He was on fire. He was on fire. Great. Good
0: on your brain. So this hey, Pepsi man. ad, that one of the very famous ones was this beautiful little boy who, Opens the door to Michael Jackson's dressing room and it's all full of Michael Jackson's not there, but it's all full of the amazing costumes and the right. silver gloves sitting there and the mm. hat. And like, it's quiet. I'm getting goosebumps now just thinking of it. It was an amazing ad. And then did, there's just never been an easier person to sell a
1: fizzy <laughs> drink to than you, right? You're like, um, and I'm in the room.
0: <laughs> uh, and the little boy's like trying on everything and you know, just sort of gazing at what in wonder. And then the door opens and it's Michael Jackson and they have a Pepsi together. And that's right. the ad. Okay. That little boy is now in his thirties and grown up, and was abused by Michael Jackson. And the other boy who's in it, um, I remember because he was from Brisbane, whose name was Wade Robson. Right, and he's like the impersonator, right? Like
1: he was that little kid yeah. that everyone was like, "Oh, you're
0: yeah, so cute." Yep. Yeah. So he was when the first concert I ever went to in my life was the Michael Jackson Bad concert at no. the Brisbane Entertainment Center. Uh, Mum cool. took me, and our neighbour Judy came, uh, and it was absolutely amazing. And they had a competition in sort of shopping centers around Brisbane for who could do the who was the best Michael Jackson. Impersonator, and this little five-year-old boy Wade Robson won it, and then he got to dance on stage with Michael Jackson. Um, he's the other boy, also now in his th- man in his thirties, interviewed in the documentary, and uh, was also abused by Michael Jackson. And ah, uh, it's. I, I cannot – under I mean, I tweeted about it and my Twitter has now been full of people defending Michael Jackson, like people saying that, you know, this is just a thing to bring down Michael and they've got no credibility and so forth. I, I don't know how anyone could watch them and think that they – the best actor in the world could not convey the pain and confusion and because they've made the decision to leave in all of the graphic talk about everything, what you get to from the victims is this – absolutely amazing insight into how being a child sex abuse victim mix, messes with your head because yeah. they absolutely loved and adored Michael Jackson yeah. and he was fantastic to them. Like yeah. Wade Robson owes his career. He's a major choreographer. He's yeah. choreographed for Britney Spears. He choreographed for NSYNC. Yeah. Um, he owes all of that to Michael Jackson. Um, Michael Jackson showered them with love and affection and gifts and yeah. opportunities and all the rest of it. So they adored and loved Michael Jackson. And he was sexually abusing them at the same time. And so it's all this horrible knot that you were abused by somebody who loved you and did all of the manipulative things separating you and estranging you a bit from your parents, um, grooming the parents as well as the kids um, and telling the kids that if you ever told anybody – and this was – Wade Robson was abused from the age of 7 to 14. Jesus, 7. Telling um, the kids, if you ever tell anyone, you know, both of our lives will be over, you'll go to prison and I'll go to prison, but this is our special thing because you're my special boy and I love you and blah, blah, blah. And so they've got these two young guys tell – and I mean, they're at, at times, you know, they'll be talking, and you'll see in their face this. They're, you know, I think one of the boys, in particular, Pepsi Boy, you could see at times that he
1: still is. And that would be an oh my god, okay, I'll just horse. Okay, we're back in the room Sorry. brilliantly. <laughs> the next complication that emerges is um, we're having a bookcase delivered. It's supposed to be happening this morning, two man delivery. But the guys just turned up, and it's only one man. So he's. <laughs>
0: luckily, just, luckily, we were just talking about child sexual abuse, so that doesn't seem
1: like a very big problem. Oh to God, you. yes, right. Oh, sorry, God. <laughs> now I've yeah. Oh. <laughs> Sometimes the Somebody's is always so having it worse, You're Annabelle. You're right. Somebody's always yeah. It worse. Excuse me with my first world problems.
0: Um. Uh, yeah. God. So. Uh, so the. The I think I was talking about the confusion of the boys, because they got this stuff all tied in a knot that they loved this person, but then it's abuse and it took them a long time to come to terms with that. And, and what about, did they talk to the parents? Because, I mean, I can yes, imagine. Jesus, that's the like, other thing about the doco that's very hard to take is the mothers of both boys ugh. are interviewed and you, look, you know, I don't want to sound judgy because, um, you know, I just don't. Because at heart you're a dirty big showbiz <laughs> mum. <laughs> you can't help but just look at it and go seriously what what were you thinking yeah. allowing your 7 year old to sleep in a bed alone with any grown man yeah. um and you know michael jackson in that era he was starting to be a bit weird already like he was outwardly weird his yeah. behavior was weird um wade robson's family i mean they were everyone was starstruck because it was michael yeah, jackson and it's hard to yeah. convey how big a star michael jackson was but the family's gone to la at michael jackson's invitation and they've gone out to neverland and it's been the most magical day ever and then the next day the family's due to sort of go on a road trip and michael says and the, the seven-year-old wade says "Kay, can i stay with michael while you guys go off i really want to stay with michael and michael's like yeah please let him be great and they do They've, mm. kn- they've known Michael Jackson for a matter of hours and they let him stay then for a week alone. Oh, my God. And the abuse starts straight away. And so allegedly starts straight away, I should say. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's the other thing that's difficult to watch because you feel like these guys have been so let down by their parents. And the mother of the Pepsi boy does actually say herself that she looks back and she says, you know, I'm going to have to live with forever. How much you have one job as a parent, that's to protect your kids, and I effed it up. And I effed it up because I was so in love with this world that had been open to me of celebrity and fame and money and flying around on Michael's private jet and all of the rest of it. And I was just so starry eyed about all of that. And it was all all these memories I have of these amazing times and wonderful things are built on the suffering of my son. And that is the truth. And so they asked the son, you know, do you blame your parents and it, the documentary actually ends with him saying, I'm working on it. Um, and the other guy's mother, I mean, his siblings, the whole family, it also showed in a very persuasive way the ripple effect of the pain on the whole family. Because what's what happened initially was when Michael Jackson was charged with um, mm. child sex offences – Wade Robson in particular was very public defender of right. Michael Jackson. And didn't
1: they both give evidence, or one of them gave evidence? They did both the- testified
0: in the first trial, and right. then the Pepsi Boy wouldn't in the second. Right. Um
1: and, and is they- that the point where his parent, where Pepsi Boy's parents knew? Pepsi Boy told his
0: mum and said James Safechuck, I should call him. Um, he told his mother, he just said Michael was not a good guy and so she basically knew. But I don't know that they knew the, detail, the right. know, full details. Wade Robson's mother said in the documentary, I've never asked him about the details, I and mean, she'd certainly know them now if she's watched it, um, she said it would be too painful for me to know the detail. Oh, God. So, um, yeah, it was. it was... One of those things that it was riveting and I am glad that I watched it because I feel like it just did give. I thought these guys were so brave and it, it explained a lot of things like, for example, why if kids are asked if they're abused, do they not admit that they have pain? Why do they yeah. not tell a grown-up? Why sometimes even as adults do they deny that it happened and
1: it takes yeah. a long time yeah. for it to come out? It, what it, is it, that amazing stat like where the average is like 20-something years? It's very common Very common, to- apparently, late God. reporting, Yeah. So, um, it, so you it, basically exhaust every possible option of not telling yeah. before you finally get to the point where you, you, you have to tell.
0: And these two guys, it was when they were sort of around late 20s and hitting their 30s. They both had their own child, and that was a, very difficult, um, and became increasingly difficult to keep the secret yeah. because they their child approached you know the age that they were when they were being abused, yeah. and they found that very triggering, um, not not triggering like they wanted to abuse their own children or, or anything. Quite the opposite, that they couldn't fathom that a child of that age would be being abused. And Wade Robson was saying. The rage, you know, when he would look at his son to think, I would kill somebody who did that to my yeah. son. So um, that for both of them. And they both just started having breakdowns and couldn't really work out why. Because unlike for us where we look at it and you go, well, you'd been sexually abused. They they were like, but Michael was my best
1: friend and we were so close and I was so special. So tied up with um, um, relinquishing something and also, oh, God. It's, it's, it's just – So poisonous, you know, that an adult can factor in all of those things and use all of their ingenuity and their adult ability to plan and strategize to put a child in that position is just so It was really,
0: really uh, upsetting. It was a very
1: upsetting doco. Um, You sent me that link to that article in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell and, you know, normally read anything that Malcolm Gladwell writes and he – he wrote this really interesting piece, and thank you for sending it um, on the strategy that pedophiles use to corner children. And it's just like this. God, the, he he uses a case, um, Jerry Sandusky, the um, uh, the U.S. football coach, um, who was um, uh, found to have. Abused a series of um, boys in his care. And like the strategy and the approach that um, Gladwell outlines is just so formulaic, you know. And it's about identifying a child that's a bit needy or a little bit lonely or a little bit vulnerable and then testing, you know. First of all, just touching them on the shoulder and seeing if, how they, you know, respond and then getting them alone. It's just like this. Oh god. Diabolical. And and
0: the the thing too is I think it's called something like in plain sight. It's about um just t- how pedophiles get away with it mm. basically. Um and it's also the grooming of the parents. And that's really apparent in the Jackson case as yeah. well, how the parents came to really love him, but Gladwell talks about there's another case of a teacher and how, you know, he's the kids really love him and the parents really love him. And so when he's accused, people are like, oh, there's no way that, you know, yeah. Mr. Whatever could be. that." And in fact, there's a
1: parent group that comes together to defend him. and yeah. yeah. And so
0: that's, you know, quite insidious, like the level of manipulation that's involved and the selecting of the targets and so forth. Um, it, you know, it was also interesting, I think, I, I couldn't help but watch the, the um, Jackson thing, with the George Pell case, course, in my mind, yeah. Four Corners recently had a big episode pulling
1: together lots of the threads in the George Pell case, as we know. Which um, is basically Louise Milligan kind of bringing together all the research that she's done and the people that she's talked to over years and years. Exactly. Um,
0: which aired after Pell was convicted of um, child sex offences. Uh, and, you know, it was... It's just that thing of the, the central witness in that case on whose testimony it, the conviction rests, because mm. basically one person's testimony, because the other victim was dead in this case. Um, his testimony was done in camera. There's no transcript. Yeah. Nobody's seen it except the jury. Yeah. Um, and I. Watching these guys, because a lot of people have gone, well, how can you convict somebody in the testimony of one person? Yeah. Watching the way these guys spoke on the Jackson doco, I felt like that must have been what the guy was like in the Pell case right, where yeah. the level of detail and the pain and just the – credibility was so overwhelming and I mean I know I've watched this Jackson doco and it's not evidence it's just two people speaking but there's just no way I can believe that they're making it up. But in these
1: cases that's what it is like it's evidence and credibility and I mean the the complainant in the Pell case is so interesting I think like you've never seen his face he doesn't do interviews and he hasn't done interviews um I mean Louise has talked to him um and she's written um Uh, written up interviews with him but he is you know living a private life doesn't want to be visually recognized Mm. Um, and there is this sense that emerges from his testimony that he is doing it because of his friend who he was with on that day and 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 who killed himself yeah Um, and you can see sorry he didn't kill himself he he died of a drug overdose but after like a deeply spiralling unhappy life that kind of deteriorated. And you can completely
0: understand why um, the complainant in that case would not want to be publicly identified because the guys in this Jackson documentary are – just getting tons of hate heaped upon them because the Michael Jackson fans are such diehards. And so the Pell case, as we've seen, even very prominent Australians have come out to defend George Pell, even though 12 ordinary Australians went in and actually heard the evidence and convicted him of child sex crimes. Other people are like, well, I just can't believe it, of George Pell. Yeah, I
1: know. It's like a whole bunch of people are just suddenly discovering how our justice system works. Like, I mean – and look i'm sure that i mean people are unfairly convicted that happens you know it happens yeah, of sure. course it does um but i just feel um and you know i you you are the believe in the justice system or you don't I think and I am far from able to offer an opinion on the I've got no idea the the legitimacy of the conviction because I wasn't in the room and see the evidence like it's just yeah exactly I would have no
0: idea all I'm going on is 12 ordinary punters went in heard the evidence and convicted so they heard all the evidence everybody else that's commentating on well there's no way he could have done it or whatever um you know, weren't there to see the evidence. Now obviously in the Jackson documentary it's built around the testimony of these two guys so they don't have someone from the Jackson estate saying, well, that can't be true because blah, blah, blah. So I'm just going on what I observed in the sort of pain and testimony of these two blokes and I find it hard to believe that it could be
1: invented. Um, Listen, I feel like we've kind of – did you know, like you know how that thing where we sometimes get into a pattern where we've read a bunch of things that are that involve similar concepts? Yeah, I, I find it hard to believe that I'm in a cultural jag of sexual abuse at the moment. <laughs> it's not God. really a happy place to be. I mean, we did Bundy last time, right? It's just <laughs> yeah, I don't know right. how this is happening to me, but um I um just finished reading um a book that I'm going to mention now because it does kind of fit in. Um, so when I went, you know, when I went to Paris to do that um, foreign correspondent on French women and me too, yeah, um, just I one of the most impressive women that I interviewed was this writer called Adelaide Bonne and she had written a novel um that hadn't been translated into English at this stage. So I didn't read her novel, but I interviewed her. Um, and the novel is essentially the story of her life. And she had been um, sexually assaulted in a stairwell in her parents' building by a uh, stranger who told her that he had sweets for her and he wanted her to help him do something or other. And um, anyway, she uh, he released her. She... Went back to her parents' apartment and sort of told them that something had happened and she was very upset, and they took it to the police and so on. And then she slowly went mad over, um, I don't know, like 20 years basically. She had, um, a very troubled adolescence. Um, she had, um, an eating disorder, anxiety, um, self loathing. She had, um, horrendous, violent f- visions and fantasies and nightmares and just was in all sorts of trouble until she realised and was able to name what had happened to her. And then through enormous amounts of therapy, she's kind of come out the other side and become this quite extraordinary, perceptive campaigner and anti-rape um uh, spokeswoman, um, but she's got this incredible um, way with words. Even though English is a second language, she was quite um, an amazing person to interview. And her theory is that um, pe- children don't. One of the reasons why um, sex and um, and harassment and so on are. Um, so difficult is that she says we we don't have separate language for sexual assault and sex it's the same we use the same words Uh, and that's why it's confusing and she says for instance that when the police were interviewing her they asked uh, this man had forced her to masturbate him and and they'd said um is it like a caress did he make you caress him and she was saying, no, like that's mm. the wrong – she couldn't name what had happened to right. her. Anyway, um, so her book, uh, which is called The Little Girl on the Ice Flow, has become this incredible bestseller. It's been tra- now translated into all sorts of different languages, including English, and it's just about to be released in Australia. I got a copy of it because I organised it through a publisher. I think it's out in a, in like a matter of days. We'll put up a link to it um, through Booktopia. But um it is – The most perceptive, beautifully written, it is um, hard to read but also um, indescribably beautiful. It's an absolutely extraordinary memoir. It's written in the third person but the story is about her. Um, And I think to understand the extent to which, I mean this was a – five, ten-minute thing that happened to her at the age mm. of nine and it it just extended its vile tentacles into every part of her life mm. and the story of how she managed to kind of find herself again at the end of this is just – it's very inspirational but um, – It's disturbing, isn't it, how – hardwired things get
0: into your brain when they happen to you in childhood. Yeah. Just feel like as I get older and I meet people and I or I see people, interview people, yeah. it is apparent just
1: how gigantically things can just affect you. But it's also this extraordinary process by which guilt and shame that should be attached to the person yes. who did this, somehow yeah. just like a horrible sticky goo just mm. cover the person who – didn't ask for it, didn't play any role in in incurring this treatment and yet they are the ones that that walk around under this terrible sludge and um, in in her case, Adelaide's case, the guy and she has very strong opinions on the extent to which sexual assault is taken seriously in France. She said that we don't care about um, kids who are sexually assaulted. The guy who sexually assaulted her, um, she got a call from the police like 20 years on and they had found him and charged him with and he had assaulted something like 80 other kids. Like he had been an absolute serial offender and he defended the charges in his his 80s I think now um, and was convicted and then appealed. So like just – extraordinary this trail of destruction that this man had um, had wreaked on the lives of all of these random children
0: the um Speaking of you saying you got an advanced copy of something, I yeah. got an advanced copy. got the proofs of Ian McEwan's yeah. new novel. Clang!
1: Machines like What's he doing me. this time? Because last time, like that one nutshell was the last one, wasn't it, where yeah. he wrote it all as, a, as an unborn fetus. Like what's he done this time? Is... I didn't
0: read that one because I didn't like that premise, but you liked it, didn't you? I loved it. I yeah. thought it was great. I should read it because I do like him. Look, um, to be honest, I actually abandoned this one um, about –
1: Wow. A third of the way through. That's hardcore. <laughs> yeah. Sales um, kicks McEwen to curb. <laughs> Not good enough. Try again, Man Booker <laughs> Prize winning Ian McEwen. Um,
0: the premise of it is – I love the premise and I love the first chapter. It was a guy who – he's re- it's set in the 1980s and he's reimagined the 80s and Britain's lost the Falklands War. Oh, okay. And uh, technology sort of evolved differently and so – he has um, just ordered a sort of doll I guess it's a rope. actually it's a robot a that sex bot you plug in and you bring to life its name's Adam mm. and you can program in you know various what you want its personalities you'd be like blah, blah blah and then you've got this extra person around who you can switch off if you want and all the rest of it anyway he's he's friendly with the girl who lives in the flat upstairs and he decides in the course of chapter one that he's actually in love with her and he wants them to sort of have Adam as their joint project so he gets her to program half the personality and he's going to program half the personality and then they're going to see what happens because he felt like if he programmed all the personality it's not going to be like getting to know a real person because then you sort of know what they're going to be like whereas he felt like maybe with a bit of both of us it might be a bit more mysterious anyway so that's the premise of it but i just i found it um what confused me was i kept thinking hang on is this actually set in the 80s or not because they'd be talking about you know email or mobile right. phone or something. And I kept thinking, why is Continuity, he-? McEwen. And I don't, but I, th- I assume that it's just in his 1980s that stuff existed. But then I was thinking, but why can't, why does this have to be said in the 80s? And I think part of my issue is because I know nothing about the Falklands. So, right, so that's
1: annoyed you as well. Yeah.
0: And I can't keep head nor tail. Whenever they lapse into stuff referencing that, I can't make head nor tail of it. And so <laughs> the whole thing just confused me and I kept getting irritated. And so i just, just by gone, it. Ian McEwen, you can get in a bin. Into the bin. <laughs> Into the bin with you.
1: Oh, you're hilarious. Yeah,
0: you anyway, idiot. It, was, it was okay.
1: Okay, well, like By after any that ch- lukewarm endorsement, I'll <laughs> By
0: any chance, amble can I out ask, and get that. I've got something in my favourites that I've been meaning to read for absolutely ages because it went gangbusters a few weeks ago yeah. and I haven't got to it. It was a piece in the New Yorker. It was some
1: sort of Oh, Ford. yeah, the Dan Mallory one. Yeah. What yeah. So have you read it? I um, have read it. What What is the shtick? So Dan Mallory is this – um. New, uh, he's a like magazine writer, really, but he wrote a novel called The Woman in the Window, which is like some unbankable kind of New York Times bestseller. Um, and what is it with this? Like, The Woman in it's like the worst. I mean, everybody goes through these phases of writing books that are exactly the same, and currently, the thing seems to be like a rear window kind of remake model, which, yeah, like The Girl on the Train. Oh, yeah, yeah. this is The Woman in the Window, right. Anyway, um, so uh, Dan Mallory is this writer. He writes under the name A.J. Finn and that is the name under which he published The Woman in the Window. Right? Fine, fine, fine. But this piece in The New Yorker is called A Suspense Novelist's Trail of Deceptions. And so it's about the real-life writer – Dan Mallory, who has apparently been living at this sort of web of lies. So it's a really long read that's all about how his colleagues started to get suspicious because he, he claimed that he was incredibly ill and dying in hospital. And the colleagues were getting emails from nominally his brother, Josh, or somebody who's, you know, like, well, Dan's, you know, had to have his, you know, kidney removed, but he's struggling through and he's got cancer and this, that, and the other. And none of that was true. And in fact, the emails that purported to be from the brother were actually from him. So there's this sort of bizarre attention-seeking, you know, thing going on. So the whole story is about this web of deception. And, like, it's certainly it's certainly a fascinating read and it's sort of guiltily absorbing because you're essentially kind of watching somebody get caught out in the biggest possible way um and that's it's a scandalous piece and people have just been all over it because of because it's such a scandal. I then went weirdly enough and read The Woman in the Window. Why? I don't know. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> I don't really like it. I didn't think it was very good. It's sort of but it is all about this um central character who is um uh, she's agoraphobic. She's trapped in her house and she's watching things go on in the house opposite her. And it's all about these sort of made-up things and f- blurred perceptions and, like, it's not actually hard. Like, it's about such profound experience with mental illness that it's very hard to – it's very easy to imagine that the person who wrote this might have some nodding acquaintance with anxiety and um, various degrees of, uh, of mental um, ill health. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, um In this article in The New Yorker about this writer, he said, look, you know, I've been struggling with mental health um, issues for a long time. I've done some things that I don't even remember doing. The Dan
0: Mallory guy. Yeah.
1: Right. And to be honest, at the end of the article I felt a tiny bit – Like he was saying that opportunistically. Nope. I felt a tiny bit grubby about reading and enjoying the story. It's weird Mm. because I just thought – Guy, this guy has clearly got some real issues going on. Um, he's obviously a talented writer. He's, um, he's got some sort of grandiloquent kind of tendencies and so on. I just felt a bit like, like he didn't sort of steal anything. He didn't – can I understand his, he made his colleagues very worried about him when he pretended that he was sick. I don't know. It's not some sort of Bell Gibson thing where he's extorted money out of, he's written a book that is genuinely people like and he's right. sold billions of copies of it. I don't know. I didn't, in the, I, I felt by the end of the article that it was a tiny bit disproportionate oh, to his okay. offense. You know, like that this incredible shaming. Right. Like the guy will never, you know, it's, it's a normal, I mean, imagine if the New Yorker kind of devoted, ten pages to lies that you've told or like, you know. I mean, like, I've never pulled off anything that that big, but like I just think I Oh. It's reminding me when you're talking about
0: it about I think it was one of the chapters in the Malcolm Gladwell yeah. so you've been publicly shamed book about Joan
1: Alera. That wasn't that wasn't. Was that in the Gladwell? Gladwell It was John Ronson.
0: Oh sorry, John Ronson of course. Yeah. yeah. That was that was Joan O'Learra in that one who was he'd written a thing about Bob Dylan and claimed that he'd had interviews yeah. with him or something and then a journo Right. Unraveled it, and and then Lara was basically begging by the end, like you know, just don't. He it started off hectoring and threatening, and yeah, then it was yeah. sort of begging to not be exposed. Yes, but
1: exactly. Isn't
0: it? It's it's a genre that people people do love that, don't they? The exposing of sure. somebody for it's a it's a popular sort of. I don't know. Hey, we like to stone people. who have been <laughs> I know, busted but I mean, in like, these kind
1: of. I mean, there was that whole spate, wasn't there, of people who had embroidered. Their recollections of things and the internet now allows nothing to die. So, yeah. um, so, you know, whether it was Hillary Clinton saying, re- recalling sort of flying in mm. under fire in this helicopter or oh, Brian Williams talking oh, about, you God, know, God. being, um, on whatever board a, ho- a helicopter that was, you know, under mortar attack or whatever. Oh. And of course he turned out, I mean, Gladwell did a really interesting podcast on this as part of his, um, uh, revisionist history series about memory and about how different people remember things differently and then embroider their recollections. And so you end up with two just vastly differing accounts.
0: Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, That's I don't know.
1: My memory is shot too, and I'd love a good story. So I'm sure I embroider. Oh, God. All the time. I'm sure
0: we all. I mean, if you asked us to, you know, let's say we had to testify in court about, say, the. Uh, Canberra Chat Ten show that we yeah. did. Yeah, I guarantee where well, I was brilliant that-
1: <laughs> and you were a bit off colour. Yeah, that's so
0: weird because I remember it exactly the opposite way around. <laughs> well, I flew in in a helicopter under heavy fire. So, <laughs> I had a you know. private jet coming from <laughs> Melbourne. Um, no, but I bet you, uh, even if they just said, "Okay, Garden Variety, what time did you arrive at the theatre? Yeah, of can course. you describe where you went?" We would have a completely yeah. different. Yeah. Remember when I was Adam? I like really our, enjoyed our, our meal at here. the Spaghetti Tree.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, right because the one in, Can- in Canberra we did our second show in Canberra yeah. last Christmas and you were being like, like just I'm sure the so dressing room is up here yeah, and you're be- like
0: no it's not it's right here and I'm
1: like it's and definitely the, up here in the end I was just laughing because I was like I know exactly where this fucking yeah and you're like all right I'll just follow you to yeah. where you think it is is. I'm and then we're gonna get there I'm rolling so not gonna hard. be there <laughs> sure enough it was just like I'm like oh lead on lead on no no I can't wait to see where you're actually taking us which was to <laughs> some sort of like utility room yeah.
0: have you um, ever been cross-examined in court
1: no and I, never I have be. like dreams about like what a great witness I'd be, but I think I'd be absolutely. Oh, I think it'd be terrifying. so bad. I think it'd be really scary. I was once um, uh, prosecuted for contempt of the Senate, and um, and it was quite serious. <laughs> and, um, my uh, barrister um, wouldn't let me even show up. In really, uh, yeah, he was just like you're staying at home. Much yeah, he was, and I was like, what? But I'm, you know. I got to defend myself, and he's like, "No." Both of us would probably talk too much
0: because we meant to say as little as possible. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. There'd be none of this sort of responses. Well, Here, let me tell you
0: what happened. No, no, no. But the other thing, like, no, but the middle thing, the bit like, "I'll oh,
1: get out of here." Yeah,
0: I do find it fascinating watching a cross examination,
1: but I, yeah. I,
0: never want to be at the receiving end of one of them. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, just on this issue of people being disgraced, um, I um. Johan Hari, who wrote um, that book about the war on dr- drugs, oh, "Chasing yeah. the Scream," mm-hmm. and then he's also written um, a more recent one on anxiety and depression oh, yeah. called uh, "Lost Connections." It's, yeah. Um. So I um I was listening to that a uh, British pop podcast that I've told you about called the High Load to mm-hmm. journalists bullshitting onto each other about stuff that they've read. It'll never catch on. Um, And they were talking about this podcast that they'd listened to, part of this series called The Joe Rogan Experience, you know, that that comedian. Anyway, he does these like three-hour conversations with people, which I think, you know, you're already twitchy because we're just over half an hour and I can see your body language (laughs) just going. But Joe Rogan talks to his people for three hours. Um, And in this one that I listened to, He speaks to Johan Hari and it's about the war on drugs and how we completely get addiction wrong. And it's so gripping. Oh, wow. It's a really – and Johan Hari, the command of detail that he has at his fingertips and he's an incredibly compelling person to listen to. But, you know, he's in disgrace because he got done for plagiarism about – Oh, that's right. Yeah, right. About like – I don't know, like – maybe five, ten years ago. Yeah, right. And I noticed that people still like they really are a bit like about him because he had to hand back some writer's award and and he'd been taking quotes – that people had given to other journalists and sort of allow, like putting them in his own work right, and allowing people to kind of like infer that the quotes had been delivered personally to him.
0: It's a fear that I have yeah. like um, that you would inadvertently get done for plagiarism because yeah. it's, it's so shameful. Yeah, And like I know with my book I tried so hard to be as meticulous as possible yeah. and so even sometimes I'd have like the tiniest thing and I'd put a reference with it because yeah. i think oh, I just want to be yeah. triply careful that I'm not accidentally thinking something's my original thought but it was actually somebody else's yeah. original thought. But I mean um, like he still
1: carries this. He still yeah. carries it. People raise it when they talk about it. And I just think like the the work that he's done um <clears throat> I think is really profound. And listen to the podcast if you get a chance. I know it's three hours long but <clears throat> it is absolutely gripping on the topic of addiction and it really did change the way I think and give me all sorts of stuff to think about. and like, um and his manner is very engaging too, as I said. and Joe Rogan barely says a word like it's you know, it's a Q and a, but Hari is just like, wow. yeah okay. and it's um, and it made me think, do you know what? you know, for me, you're off the hook. I reckon you've paid your price. You've done an inordinate amount of work on these two really important books. And so I think time to let this dude come in from the cold.
0: Um, I just very quickly, as you know, I hate a long, you know, thing to listen to or watch. I
1: don't I, – yeah. They could that's, do why edit. I, that's why I viciously <laughs> asked you to go and listen to this three hour podcast. But
0: somebody recommended to me in very high, uh, with high praise, a podcast called Hardcore History with Dan Carlin, which I oh, really yeah, love. I have heard of that. And so this friend had listened to 24 hours of <laughs> World War I, the history of World War I. Jeez. And I said, What? Is, it an, is he interviewing people? No, it's just him talking. It's like a lecture. And she said, It's riveting. I've listened to 24 hours. I thought, Oh my God. Anyway, I've listened to about three hours, and that's enough for me. Right. Yeah. I, but, where but, are you up to? Have but it did a shot's actually. He is a fan. No, like it's no, they haven't. It takes ages. But he gives I the mean, most wars. They just
1: don't move very fast. That's the problem.
0: He gives the most fantastic context, and he is a wonderful sort of raconteur and storyteller. Like he's he's fantastic. But hey, um, because we are nearly out of time, it reminds time to I wrap want up to,
1: this world conflict. I want to ask you about something. Yeah, you saw the clock. I did see the clock. What did you think? Talking about twenty four hours. I've been hours dying of to ask suspense. you about it. Absolutely loved it. Oh, like it's great. Just, okay, good. I couldn't. What time so, did you go? Uh, I went from 11 till 12 and yep. I took my 12 year old daughter with me and she was just completely riveted. Oh, I thought, I wonder what this will be interesting because she won't remember, like she won't recognize the films, but just even the concept just absolutely sucked her right in. Right. And the thing that I find, I mean, the thing that's impressive about it is just this colossal glimpse that it gives you of the hugeness of human filmmaking. Mm. Like you just think, how is it you can find 20 films where 11 minutes past 11 has just been, you know, displayed on a clock face? I mean it's just – and – so the the scope of the endeavor is just so laugh out loud brilliant. Like you yeah. just think wow, you lunatic to totally attempt agree. this. Extraordinary. But the other thing that's so sophisticated about it that I just like that makes it so compelling is just the smoothness of the editing oh, like phenomenal. and the and the score like the the way that the music yeah. just sort of like melts into the next sequence. I don't know. I do not know how they did it. I really don't. And I just, I could have sat there all day. Um, The thing that's
0: so amazing is hearing you say that and having seen, you know, the one hour of it is knowing myself from my own experience that that's exactly what I thought in the first hour. And then when you go back repeatedly, it just, it keeps giving you different experiences and different things you're noticing. And that's why I think it's such a phenomenal work of art because it just kept unfolding every time you went, it unfolds some extra bit of realisation to you. It was absolutely amazing.
1: We stuck around for high noon, of course, which is just like, yeah, just this, so I can, I mean, I think you said when you were telling me about it before that there are these sort of natural peaks of yeah. anxiety and activity yeah. where people are just like really rushing around to, yeah. you know, get something done before the clock the strikes. The tension at 11.50. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I loved it. I really oh, good. loved it.
0: Oh, that's, I'm so glad because, yeah, I loved it. And lots. I have actually, since we had that podcast, had tons of people send me messages to say I've gone to see that because you were so enthused by it. So, <laughs> yeah. Okay, i got to go do my show. Okay.
1: Bye. See you next time. For more, you can head to chat10looks3.com where you'll find information about everything we've discussed in this episode. Click on the link Bedside Table to purchase books we've discussed. If you scroll down the homepage, you can also sign up for our newsletter which has heaps of interesting extra things to read, watch and listen to. And sometimes, the website even has merchandise to buy and info about live shows around Australia. You can follow Chat 10 Looks 3 on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook. It's <sighs> to listening.